You're listening to episode 40 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds in the Black. I'm Tara, he's Alex, and while the Cardinals are making personnel changes, we're wondering, what about the changes that should happen to MLB Replay? Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. As you just heard, this is episode 40, which seems like a lot, but also we're in to the second week of August, which seems absolutely absurd. So I guess it seems pretty much right on track. Tara and Alex with you as always. Alex, we'll talk about how the Cardinals are in a minute, but how are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty well. <laughs> uh, how are we feeling about this Cardinals game right now? This 2-0 lead feels suspicious. It does. However, I don't want to. I just want you to hear all this. That's me knocking on wood. Um, <laughs> Jack Flaherty looks pretty good right now, and he's looked pretty good in his last couple of outings. So I feel more confident in that than I would in, say, you know, whoever starts on the fifth day of the rotation at this point. But a 2 0 lead does not seem like that much for, uh, for the way things have gone for the Cardinals. And, you know, we always kind of talk about the Royals as the annoying little brother, but it's also a series to me that always feels like similar to a Cub series or a, a Red series or something like that. It can go poorly very quickly. It doesn't often, but it can. So maybe that's why I feel a little less confident in a, a 2-0 lead in Kansas City as opposed to maybe somewhere else. But But Jack's been on, so that's good to see. Yeah, first I want to say, normally when I hear someone say knock on wood, they do two or three knocks. It sounded like you did four knocks. I don't, I, didn't, the, I wasn't counting. Um, right. I, it seemed like a lot of knocks. Yeah, just it, for good measure. <laughs> uh, okay. um, no, Flaherty's been awesome, and he's he's been great his last four, I want to say, last four or five outings now. Mm-hmm. The offense, I would like to see put up a little more uh, runs on uh, Sparkman or whatever this lad's name is. Uh, <laughs> but I, I guess I should give context. We're in the sixth inning. Uh, Flaherty is at 81 pitches, uh, runner on first for the Royals. Uh, Cardinals are up 2 nothing. But, but yes, it, what you said seems very true. I, I feel as though even though the Royals have been to uh, a World Series more recently than the Cardinals have, they have more often than not been the worst of the two teams, and the Cardinals seem to play them at pivotal, ah, excuse me, pivotal, my gosh, pivotal, pivotal <laughs> <it> times, <laughs> and haven't always been able to play the way we would like to against them. It, it kind of reminds me last year, uh, this doesn't really have too much to do with it, but Remember late in the season after the Cardinals went on that nice streak, then they had the Tigers like at the most yeah. <laughs> opportune time and they just totally laid an egg. I think they lost like two of three or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is a good time to be playing the Royals for two games after that great sweep against Pittsburgh. If they could take care of business here, then I think we can forget all about uh, what happened out West. Yeah, we saw a just a beat down on that West Coast trip. And then nice to see the Cardinals come back and sweep the Pirates. Although it's been a while since I've seen a team that's as much of a train wreck as the Pirates appear to be right now. So, I mean, the Cardinals may have gotten a little bit lucky in the timing of that series. But like you said, they've not always taken advantage of those opportunities in the past. Nice to see them do that to get that sweep 
gain a little momentum, then come into this series, of course, with guys like Jack Flaherty pitching well, um, you know, and some strong starts along the way from other guys, although that's (laughs) a bit inconsistent as well. We'll talk more about that as we go along. But before we talk about specific things that uh, are either problematic or potentially good for the Cardinals right now, let's talk about something that came up a lot in that pirate series. And that is the entirety of MLB's replay process. I think there was at least one call in each of those games that was reviewed. And what seemed like the obvious conclusion was not what happened in the review process, or at least not was either confirmed or overturned. So um, Alex, we've seen the replay process, the review process, the umpires in general seemingly take more and more heat as the seasons go on since it was implemented. It's a weird, I don't quite know how to ask this question. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it just not working at all and we should do without it? I mean, what do you make of replay's role in really important games like the Cardinals are playing in right now? Okay, so... I'm fine with replay. I, I'd rather have it than not have it. I My biggest complaint is more with how long some of the replays can take on yeah. what is seemingly a very obvious call. But overall, I'm happy that it exists. I think the biggest problem with replay is how we sort of perceive replay. Uh, and what I mean by that is this. Um, Let's let's use uh, our, our criminal justice system as an example. All right, so when someone's on trial for a crime, they have to be found, what's that expression? Guilty uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Right. But the problem is no one has ever been able to give a good definition of what beyond a reasonable doubt means. Yeah. And so... Not only that, but then you're also talking about putting this kind of nondescript standard in the hands of 12 different people. It's always different people. You never have the same 12 people on a jury, um, and each person is always different. And so then that's why you see a verdict where perhaps evidence that would convict one person would maybe acquit a completely different person. And it doesn't quite seem fair, but that's that's how the system works. I think of that when I think of replay in terms of what what is the expression most often used in terms of what it takes to overrule the play on the field. It's, it's like irrefutable evidence or clear and obvious visual, uh, excuse me, visual evidence. Well, again, that's yeah. to me kind of like beyond a reasonable doubt in that the interpretation of that is in the eye of the beholder and in that beholder being whoever is sitting in New York City at that time reviewing the play, who I assume is different from night to night. And so what might be irrefutable evidence to one person is possibly not at all irrefutable evidence to the person who's sitting there the next night. So I I think the call I'm thinking about the most from this past week is when I believe Fowler tried to stretch a single into a double, was called out on the field, and there was one replay. There were two different replays we, we were shown. And one replay, to me, it looked like he was clearly safe. The other one was a little closer, but I would still have leaned towards safe. But because of the amount of deference we give to the call on the field, he was still called out. Now, yeah, that sucks. 
he was probably safe. And he, I think replay kind of failed in that instance. But I don't agree with the idea like, well, replay doesn't work, get rid of it. Because I think the flaw in the way we perceive replay is that it was going to get rid of the human element. And that's not the case at all. It's still humans looking at this, you know, through a monitor or whatever. This isn't Hawkeye like they have in tennis, which is like six cameras positioned, um, you know, to track the ball. And then a replay goes to that and they show instantly. I think that's one of the reasons why I love that Hawkeye in tennis. Do you know what I'm talking about, Tara? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's awesome because, one, they show it on the big board. Everyone gets all excited. And within seconds, they show you whether or not it's in or out. And the funny thing about Hawkeye is I believe they've shown that it's not always accurate. Yeah. But no one can complain. No one can argue with Hawkeye because it's a machine, you know. <laughs> so whether or not it's accurate or not, you have to accept it. Uh, and I believe it's, it's, it's very, very, very accurate. You know, I, it's, I don't, it's not like it's missing calls like left and right. Not at all. It's it's very, very accurate. But there have been times where, it, for whatever reason, because we're talking about machines, they have just gotten something wrong. But no, the human element still exists in replay. It's just that, again, people have different definitions. People are different and people perceive what, you know, irrefutable evidence might mean. I mean, what, what do you think? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you like replay? And uh, next thing I'll ask, because I think this is worth the discussion. Should we give so much deference to the call on the field? Like, because I think in my perfect world, replay, whoever's doing the the replay, who's ever looking at it, would not care or almost, if you could, not even know about what the call was on the field. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And I want to come back to that um, because I want to go back to the irrefutable evidence yeah, thing. Sorry, I think I that's a lot, really. So I know. Yeah, I, no, no, no. I, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll get to both questions. Um, with the irrefutable evidence thing, so so basically the point is like is i mean you look at a play if you're talking about was he safe or was he out so for it to be irrefutable right is there a possibility that he's safe maybe you say yes is there a possibility that he's out if you also say yes then at least in theory the way that it's written you can't overturn that play right because there's a possibility that he's safe there's a possibility that he's out if it's irrefutable then there's no possible way for both answers to be true. Okay. Like in my mind, that's how I'm thinking about it. In theory, it's a good idea, right? Because if you are going to overturn a play that's made on the field, you want it to be because it's absolutely the wrong call. I think what gets frustrating though, and this is where I think maybe we need to change that terminology. Maybe that shouldn't be the way that replay is determined because, you know, if, if you're looking at, if there are three guys in the replay booth in New York and there are 30,000 people watching on TV or whatever it is, and only those three guys are the ones that think that he was actually out and everyone else thinks that he was probably safe. Like, obviously the, the team bias comes into play here, but when when it seems like it, there's a 99% chance that he was safe versus the 1% chance that mm-hmm. he was out and you call it in favor of the 1%, that's what's so frustrating, I think. So, I mean, if replay exists in its current form, then yes, if you apply the irrefutable evidence standard, not many plays are going to be overturned because most of the plays that are reviewed are going to be very close and that's why they're called correctly or incorrectly on the field, right? Because it's a very close call. But where I think that's problematic is that, I mean, if you can look at it and say, yeah, he's probably safe, 
but there's that 1% chance that he's not, so I can't change the call. That seems like an ineffective use of the technology. So as it stands, it's probably applied correctly most of the time, but I'm just not sure that's the way that it should be. In answer to your second question, the deference given to the play as it's called on the field, I would love for a replay that's sent to New York for them to not know what the call was on the field. Because I feel like that's the only true way to get, it's like getting a second opinion, right? When you go see a a doctor or whatever, you don't necessarily want them to confirm what someone else already said. You want their unbiased opinion based on their own research or based on their own, you know, study of the data or whatever it is. In this case, was his foot touching the bag or was it not? (laughs) It's not, we're not talking about rocket science here, but that to me would be a a step in the right direction if they didn't know what the call was on the field. But here's the other thing that I want to throw out there because I think it's interesting if we're talking about the, the replay officials in New York being influenced by what the call is on the field, because I think that the, the officials on the field have to be influenced in the way they call a game by the fact that there's the possibility of review, right? Even if, even if it's just subconsciously, because I think about this, I mean, if I'm on the field and I'm having to make a, a safer and out call and my call is definitive and it has to be right or I'm going to hear about it for the rest of forever because no one else can ever have a chance. Like there's no there's no do over, right? There's not a, a reset button and, and you get to try again. If my call is the only one that matters, I, I'm, I better be darn sure that I'm confident in what I saw or in what I called. If there's the possibility that, well, if I get it wrong, they can review it. And even if the manager has used his reviews, they can still ask for a replay or an umpire review, which is another thing that I think is terrible about the system. But that's a different point. Uh, and and if, it's, if it's a close call and there's a chance it's wrong, it's probably going to get looked at by someone else anyway. It might subconsciously change the way that I make those calls, right? You're going to go for the safe call, not necessarily safer out, but the the less risky call on the field, knowing that it can be overturned if you get it wrong. So it, it sort of is like this circular undermining of the system if the officials in New York are influenced by the call on the field and the calls on the field are influenced by the possibility of sending it to New York. And again... I think that maybe in theory that sounds good, but in practice, it doesn't really make the system work very well. Hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. I think I slightly disagree with one of your points. Okay. Um, I, so the first thing, I totally agree. Like It would definitely be ideal if we could have a replay system where they don't know what call was made on the field totally agree with that in theory i think in practice that's going to be very hard because you know they're going to be looking at all these different angles of what happened and i would think in one of those angles you you might be seeing the umpire (laughs) making a call you know like say for al or or whatever but so maybe a more realistic thing there would be just to say don't even care about what call was made on the field yeah and to that, I don't know if MLB part of the reason, you know, it's not just baseball. I think football was who was who first introduced us, at least introduced me to this, like, you know, irrefutable evidence, you know, to overturn or whatever. 
So baseball is not the only uh, sport that has this standard. And I don't know if they use the exact same language um, for what it takes to overturn a call, but it's certainly the same in spirit. If it's a situation where MLB wants to give deference to the call made on the field because, one, it makes their umpires look better if, like, the, uh, you know, replay stats aren't constantly going against them, you know. Well, I don't know if that really does make them look better. You you know, like, I think we all agree that the umpires are actually really good. Like, it's not an easy thing to do. And I'm often more impressed um, than I am disgusted with umpires, I I will say. Like, you know, how good they are at at, uh, bang-bang plays at the play or or whatever. Um, And when a call is overturned, when an umpire misses a call, it's rare that I'm just like, what is this guy doing? Like, you know, how did he miss that? Usually it's like, oh, I could easily see how he would miss that. That was a very quick play, you know. Angel Hernandez, you know, that seems to be more of, you know, there are times where he'll be like turning on Twitter and he'll have missed like a bunch of, you know, terrible calls. Um, <laughs> but, and I don't mean to pick on Angel Hernandez cause I feel like everyone does, but, but, but I don't feel like that's the norm. You know, I, I feel like for the most part yeah. umpires, you There's know, There's a I, reason there are only like two or three names of umpires. Exactly. That, that, that's, that's <laughs> what I was, um, that's what I was about to say. Like there's exactly there, like the, the umpires we know by name are the ones that, we know because everyone thinks they're bad umpires. To your point about do they umpire differently knowing that there is kind of like a check and balance on their call, that's the part I sort of disagree with, although I base this on no fact whatsoever. I would think that they're not thinking about that, um, only because what do you think they're sort of graded upon this stuff? Like, it's still very important for them to get the call right on the field, regardless if it can be overturned or not. Because I would think, you know, whatever sort of review or whatever that comes up, I would think takes that into account. But I think that is an interesting point that I'd never thought of. That And I wouldn't, I, I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that they're like, well, I don't care if I get right, this right no, or wrong. No, but just like, even that. subconsciously, knowing that there's... I don't know, maybe it takes the pressure off of the moment because there's another chance. No, that could be. I don't know. That's a good, I would love to know. um, I I would love to hear an umpire, like someone who's no longer umping so they could be honest about it. I'd love to hear, hear their take on this Uh, because that very well could be, I don't know. Or, I mean, honestly, the, the flip side of that could be that because it can be reviewed. There's more pressure. So you see umpires make mistakes more because of the added pressure of knowing, well, if I get this wrong, they're going to review it and everyone's going to know that I got it wrong. (laughs) I don't know. It just seems like there's sort of this like big brother thing that could have an impact on the way umpires do their job on the field. I would love to know, like you said, from an umpire's position, if they like having replay as a backup or if it, you know, makes what they do on the field more difficult. I don't know. Well, overall, I'm in favor of it. Like, like obviously, you know, we're Cardinals fans, so we know the name Dankinger and stuff. You know, we would have loved to have replay back then. I, I, you know, I think, do you think the Galarraga perfect game is what spurred it the most? What, what was the driving mm. for? Or was it just a, a well, preponderance of things that kind of... Remember, when replay first was introduced, it was only for like fair or foul home run calls. <laughs> it wasn't even for like plays that like there was a time yeah. when 
we felt like that was a good idea. Uh, um, I, <laughs> somehow we got very far away from that. But uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly in favor of utilizing the technology that so many other sports have found a way to integrate. Mm-hmm. I just think that the system is, uh, I don't know, maybe a little simplistic, a little bit elementary in how it operates. And that actually hurts the effectiveness of what they're trying to do. And I think you can overthink it and you can overanalyze and you can turn it into a a big thing that doesn't necessarily need to be. I have lots of issues with the replay system and the way that it's implemented, but in general, yeah, I think it's a good thing. I just think it, it, there are a lot of holes in the way that it works and how it works. And when it, when it seems to actually do the job of getting the call right, as opposed to confirming something that may have been wrong. And that seems like a very muddled mess to me. uh, A couple more things to say. Uh, I think one of the problems is just like the idea that I think some people thought like, okay, now it's going to be perfect um, or calls aren't going to be missed. And that's clearly not the case. Calls are still, are still going to be missed. Um, Why do they all have to go huddle over there? (laughs) Because <laughs> only one guy needs to have the headset on, right? Because they're not doing anything. They're just yeah. waiting to get word. Don't they always all sort of huddle yeah. together? Yeah. I've always wondered about that. I also just realized uh, I went to the Nats home opener opening day. Uh, they're playing the Braves. Whatever year replay was introduced. Well, this would have been 2014, 2000. When, when was the replay introduced? 2013? How long has this been in our lives? I I don't remember. Whatever it was. I want to say like the second or third inning, there was a challenge. And it was like a huge moment in the stadium because no one had ever seen this before. I remember everyone was like, ooh, this this is interesting. I think, I don't remember what it was. I feel like maybe they were challenging whether or not a ball got stuck in the uh, like outfield, like kind of that area between the padding on the wall and the ground and whether or mm. not, because I think a player, you know, threw up his arms to say like, you know, stop everything. I can't, I can't get the ball. I don't remember. But uh, yeah, I do remember that idea that, wow, this is so novel. Everyone was really into to see how the replay system would work. But I think my biggest complaint is just like, if you could speed it up, that would be great, especially on the obvious calls. Right. Well, and I think that's where people get frustrated is when it seems obvious, like, why is this taking three minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, just to, you know, throw a couple of things out there that bother me about it. <laughs> um, I think the fact that some plays are reviewable and other plays are not is kind of arbitrary. Like, if you can look at it a second time and get, make a better call, why is it not reviewable? It seems strange to me, the, the things that are reviewable and things that aren't. The fact that there's a, a time limit technically as to when you can choose to challenge a play, but it's not actually, uh, no one's actually held to that. It seems a bit weird. We saw Mike Schilt get kind of riled up about that in a series earlier this year where he was basically given a warning for taking too long and the opponent wasn't. And then he was, you know, <laughs> got a stopwatch mm-hmm. out. They're timing each other to see how they're applying. That, that just seems a little archaic and unnecessary. Um, the, I mean, a time limit, obviously you can't, you can't challenge it after the next pitch has been thrown, but the, like you have 30 seconds, everyone's looking at the dugout to see what's going to happen. Are we going to challenge? Or it just seems weird. Um, and then the thing that really bugs me, and I mentioned this a moment ago, 
if there are a limited number of challenges, then there should be a limited number of challenges. I think that would make it more interesting because then it becomes a strategy, right? It's early in the game. Do you use your challenge because you're confident that it was that it's going to go your way? Or do you save it until later in the game at a more pivotal moment? Well, right now it doesn't matter because even if you use it and it doesn't go your way later in the game, you can just go up to the umpire and ask him to review it anyway. <laughs> just what's the point in having a limit if they can look at it just because you asked? I'm, I'm going to disagree because I think of like, imagine that Galarraga play. Uh, and I'm talking about Armando Galarraga, who threw what was basically a perfect game, but they Jim Joyce missed a call at first base. Uh, he felt terrible about it, to his credit. Um, and so he didn't get a perfect game. Uh, imagine not being able to change that call because they had already used their challenge. Um, to me, the point of replay is to just try and get every call on the field as right as possible. Um, well, then don't have it, a... Without having it as, as onerous as possible. And I know what you're going to say, like, so why even the, have the challenge thing part be a thing? And I sort of agree. But if you take... I, I think that is just sort of there as a reminder to be like, all right, guys, don't be annoying about this. <laughs> you have, you know, you, you, but they can you, if they want to. Yeah, they can I, still yeah, have. yeah, and I, yeah, you're right. And like, I think we're both thinking about Madden uh, in that Cardinal yeah. series, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I would have wanted Schultz to do the same thing. To be honest, like at the end of the day, I just want the calls on the field to be as right as possible. Um, and so that's why going back to what we were talking about earlier, I wish they didn't care as much about what call was made on the field. And then when they were looking at a replay, they just went into it with as much um, as naively as possible with just the idea of, all right, what does this look like? Forget yeah. about what happened. Does he look safer out? You know what? He looks safe to me. He's safe. Fowler's, you know, Foot clearly seems to touch the bag before uh, that swipe tag came in. He's safe. And we'll all go on about, you know, our lives. But um, even that doesn't work if you're still stuck in the irrefutable evidence bubble, right? Because if you're looking at it and you don't know what the call was and you're still thinking, well, he could have had his foot off right. the bag, then what, what call do you make? Well, if you have it, to be 100% sure, how are you ever going to make a call that's close? I don't think – so – Certainly, the definition of irrefutable leaves no wiggle room. But I don't think the spirit of of that clause or that or whatever that sort of direction is supposed to be one hundred percent to zero. I think there is. I think there is a lot of leeway given to what does this look like? Like, you know, was there a chance Fowler was out on that play? Obviously, there was. Or I would, it, to me, he looked clearly safe. But one replay kind of maybe, maybe looked like he could have been out. But I don't even know where I'm going with, <laughs> with this. So I guess, I think, so my question, I guess, on that then is, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, what it sounds like you're saying is that there needs to be overwhelming evidence, not irrefutable evidence. So if there's like overwhelming evidence. All right, so, so going back to my initial example about like a criminal case. So like, let's think about a civil case where it's just like preponderance of the evidence, right? Where that's basically like, if it's 51 to 49, you go with the 51. You don't stick right. with the 49 because the call in the field you know, um, backs up the 49. No, that would change a lot of calls, right? Because if you have six angles of replay and five of the six show that he's safe and one of them shows that he might not be, mm -hmm. 
most of the time we're getting the call that is based on the fact that there's one that well, might not be. Do we give here it, and I'm going to give a little tepid defense to the idea of giving deference to the call made on the field. If there are five calls that show he's safe and I mean, excuse me, five angles that show he's safe and one angle that shows he's out and the call on the field was that he's out. Is it reasonable to say, well, you know what? The umpire was right there. He had a different angle than we are all seeing through these six camera angles, at least a slightly different angle because the cameras aren't like through his eyes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like, so Look, this guy's professional. He had he was as close to the play as anyone. We certainly have one angle that shows why he made that call. Maybe we should just stick with that. That is a very reasonable way of looking at it, I believe. I don't know if that if I'm convinced that that means we sh- it should be like that. I I think I'm with you in that. If you can't tell, I'm sort of like debating this in my head as we're going on. <laughs> but I think I'm with you in that I would prefer just like, okay, what does it look like? Forget about the call and field. What does it look like? But there is something to the idea that, no, look, the umpire was right there. He had the better, he possibly had a better angle than any of these angles that are being shown on TV. Um, but he doesn't devil's have to- advocate, if we have a 360 degree view of something <laughs> and 300 degrees of that show that he was safe and the 60 degree angle that the umpire had shows that he was out which one's more accurate right is it because he was on the field and from his angle it looked a certain way that he's right or is it right because everything else shows it's right that's like this is a weird thing to try to figure out and i'm sure it's why replay is as simplistic as possible and why they give so much credence to what the official called on the field, but I'm not sure that that's, I mean, if the, if the, if the basis of all of this is to get the call right and five out of six angles show that the call is wrong and we still go with that call because one angle shows that it might've been the right one. It just, it seems like it undermines the, its own purpose, but I don't know how you fix that without making it so complicated that it actually takes longer, not less time. Yeah. And, no, you're right. And I, what I will say, though, is it's very rare where you see one angle and you're like, oh, he's clearly safe. And then you see another angle where it's like, oh, he's clearly out. Usually what these angles show is like maybe one or like, oh, I think he's safe. And then you're like, ooh, I'm not sure. Like it's always – it's never like yeah. he's clearly out here, but then you look at this angle, he's clearly safe here. It's it's usually more like, oh, I just really have no idea, which to me is another reason to maybe give leeway to whatever call was made on the field. But yeah, overall, I would just like to see it be modified to speed it up and to just try to get what looks right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds simple. I think we've established in the last (laughs) half an hour that it's not quite that simple. I imagine a roundtable of baseball people and umpires and everyone involved in this sitting around just like this massive conference table having this debate for hours and hours because, I mean, they all want to get it right. None of them are in this business doing the job that they're doing because they want to make bad calls. Mm -hmm. but you know, they don't want to be undermined constantly by the system. But at the same time, if there's going to be a system in place, you want it to 
be one that actually serves the purpose that it's there for. It just, you know, when you start adding, and then, I mean, different ballparks have different numbers of cameras and do you use all of those? Like it just, there's not necessarily a, a unified application of it perhaps. And the fact that it all goes back to New York maybe ensures that you are using the same technology on the back end for everything, but you know, then it takes longer. And I often wonder if, you know, there are 10 games happening on any one night and there are six of them all doing reviews at the same time. Is there like a backlog of who comes first mm-hmm. in the review? I don't know. It just, it seems like there are a lot of wrinkles to be worked out and and they're not really, that's not really a focus of what's happening in baseball. And so instead we just complain about every review ever. The I, I, it seems like the, yeah it seems like the hardest plays most difficult plays are the plays at home because the plate is not like the other bases you know it's not yeah. it's basically flat so sometimes you can't tell if someone is on mm-hmm. the plate or hovering over the plate uh, which reminds me well, not reminds me but it just made me think of this like wouldn't it be cool if every base was a different shape or would that not be cool or that would just be really stupid probably really stupid actually. Like a circle, a square, yeah. a triangle, and then whatever the home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we did learn at Blogger Day that they're toying with the idea of sort of flattening the other bases as well um, in order to keep people from rolling ankles and things like ah, that. So, you're, I mean, you're not totally off base with the changing uh, of the bases. Well, thing. Just think how hard that's going to be for those plays where like yeah. big off at first, Oh, the guy slowly like barely came off the bag for like a millisecond. I mm-hmm. feel like that would be amplified by yeah, having a smaller ladder bag. So hopefully they would also have some sort of rule that like, you know, if you're over the bag after sliding back into it, um, you know, you're still safe. I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it, it would be a weird change. Um, but that, Oh, we'll and, to see. and that, and we can't talk about replay without me talking about like how much I hate the idea of if a guy is off a bag after sliding into it, like when he's trying to steal second or whatever <laughs> for a split second. And I'm not talking about if he slides past the bag, I'm talking about just slightly, you know, part of his body for a very short amount of time is not touching the bag. Then they go to replay and, zoom in and they call him out. You know, I, I think the most uh, egregious example of this was in that game five NLDS between the Cubs and Nats. And I think was that two, uh, 2017. That that was the one that made me the most mad. Maybe yeah. because it was the Cubs, but it did make me mad. And they need to do <laughs> Probably that. <laughs> well, I'm curious to know what all of you think about the replay process. Not just do you love it or hate it, but what is it that could make it better? What would be your consensus on the irrefutable evidence versus overwhelming evidence? How do you not undermine the umpires on the field while giving more credibility to the technology available? Let us know what you think, because I think this is a really interesting conversation. I just don't have any real solid conclusions based on it. So let's continue this. Meanwhile, let's go back to the Cardinals specifically for a few minutes of your time. I want to talk about the growing 
group of potential outfielders for the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm laughing because I think there are like nine of them on the roster right now because of the recent addition of Randy Rosarena, who is in Kansas City for the series, not in the starting lineup and has not made an appearance tonight as far as I know, but I also haven't been paying super close attention. Pretty sure he hasn't pinch hit anywhere. I feel like that would have been a thing I stopped and looked up for, but The point is Randy Rosarena finally on the major league roster, but that means you also have Lane Thomas. He of the go ahead grand slam against the pirates in game three, when he finally got a start. Um, And you have, you will in theory have Harrison Bader sometime sooner, probably rather than later, Tyler O'Neill will come off the aisle at some point. Then you have the regulars of Dexter Fowler and Marcelo Zuna. Jose Martinez just went on the aisle. I mean, that's seven guys (laughs) at this point, not including Jairo Munoz and Tommy Edmond, which makes nine possible outfielders. What do you do with this? (laughs) Well, First off, I, I don't have the volume on, but de- but going on our last conversation, Fowler just hit a ball that hit the wall. I think it was fair. It looked like it hit the foul pole. The foul pole, not in uh, not at a home run, but the foul the foul line, I guess, on the wall. But they called it foul. Uh, so <sighs> I don't know if there's no replay on that. I, I guess it, there's no replay on that, right? It's just like a call. It's just right. like a line drive down the line that that an umpire calls. Oh, no, wait, they can review that. What am I talking about? Yeah, um, they should review I was, that. I was oh. thinking of the play where the ball like goes over the bag. Which is another stupid <laughs> thing. Like you can't review it right. before it crosses third, yeah. but you can't. Why? Why is that a thing? I don't, I don't Anyway, so, go ahead. Anyway, I, it looks fair to me. I, I don't know what they're talking about on the TV, but I'd be curious to see why this is not being reviewed. Anyway, um, maybe we uh, already use our challenge and Schilt isn't being annoying. Uh, like you should be like madness. Uh, I don't know. Um, so to your thing, I don't know what you do. I know you shouldn't have uh, Munoz and Edmund playing in the outfield. That seems like a good so, place to but, start. Yeah, let's start there. Uh, we can remind everyone of your tweet again. Uh, the infielders in the outfield uh, tweet. Uh, it's reached yeah, yeah. pretty legendary status this past week. So congrats on that. Thanks. Um, Thanks. So obviously Ozuna you want to have in left field. Because you want that bat in the lineup. Uh, I think Fowler's going to play. Uh, should Fowler be playing center field? I don't know. Uh, I, you know I've, I think Kyle, and I've heard other people who are pretty convinced that he actually hits better when he plays center field. Why that would be, I don't know. People, they feel more comfortable in the outfield, then maybe they're going to bring that comfort to the plate. I don't know how that works or if it's even a thing at all. But with all these other guys, Lane Thomas, uh, Randy Orozarena, did I, I said it right? Orozarena. Yeah. Okay, Orozarena. Um, I, I don't know what you do. You know, I, I know, I know. People were upset that you know Orozarena, uh, you know, was kind of the hot hand, and he was tearing it up in uh, in Memphis, and you know, is immediately sitting on the bench tonight. And I think there might be some valid complaints there, but like, I don't know what you do. Like, you obviously want to keep getting these guys as many at-bats as possible, which was a problem with Lane Thomas um, at the beginning. But I think my ideal lineup right now, or at least my ideal configuration in the outfield, is some combination of Fowler and Ozuna, and then for that third spot, by committee, Lane Thomas, um, Arosa Reina. Who am I forgetting? I, I know Jose Martinez, but I'm kind of 
you know, if Jose Martinez isn't hitting, then there's certainly, then he probably doesn't need to be yeah. playing. Um, he, he's yeah. probably better off as a bat off the bench. I think that's a, a good place for this to be right now. It gets complicated when Harrison Bader comes back. And obviously mm-hmm. there'll be roster movement mm-hmm. there. Lane Thomas and Randy Rosarena may not both stay on the roster, at least not until rosters expand. But yeah, I mean, I think that the trick is at this point, there's this weird obsession with Tommy Edmond to the point that he is playing, not tonight, but has played in the outfield over Lane Thomas, who wasn't even given a chance to fail before he was relegated to the bench role. I mean, it was just a very weird dynamic there. And while whatever it is that Tommy Edmond has done to earn the the trust of Mike Shilton company is fine, I, I think, you know, costing yourself the the opportunity for Lane Thomas to do what he does defensively and at the plate, costing Randy Rosarena the chance to prove that what he's done at every other level isn't a fluke and he can do it at the big leagues as well, shouldn't come by way of putting Tommy Edmund in the outfield. It just seems like a very bizarre, like of all the things that Mike Schilt has done, that to me is the the biggest head scratcher. And because I think you're right. I think you have to at this point kind of by committee or at least give them both an opportunity to contribute with Lane Thomas and Randy Rosarena both on the roster. They both need to play and they're both capable of it, at least by everything we've seen in their careers up to this point. Mm-hmm. It does then sort of present a weird dilemma with the guys that will come back. I mean, we're talking about three major league outfielders that are either on the aisle or in Memphis right now. And then all of a sudden you have this weird sort of cluster on the roster again. But yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's, it, it is complicated as has become sort of a <laughs> negative word in this season, but it doesn't have to be as, complex as I think it has been. I mean, you, you got to give these guys a chance to play. Yeah, and uh, certainly when Tyler O'Neill comes back from the IL, then I think he should probably get the bulk of those at-bats, at least as far as um, Rosarena and Lane Thomas are concerned. But no, I agree. I guess it's a good problem to have. Um, although, is it? I don't know. Like, it's not like... At this point, I'm not sure it is. <laughs> um, I don't know. That that's It's not a very good answer, but I really don't know. I, I just... It shouldn't be Edmund and Munoz. And what's really frustrating me about Edmund is I like I like Edmund. Um, I, I think he can be a valuable player to this team, but yeah. it's not doing him any favors to bat him second or bat him lead off when his bat doesn't play there or, or to play him out of position. I just don't see any reason. To, I don't know. I just don't see any reason to do that. I, I don't see any reason to be playing him. Um, every day either uh to me he's a guy who should be he's like a 400 plate appearance a season guy in my opinion um not an everyday player i think this is to me this is the danger in the riding the hot hand philosophy because then you sort of get stuck in this pattern of well this is the guy who was hot but the thing is tommy edmund stop being hot (laughs) A couple weeks ago, like this, he's not writing this hitting streak that's just propelling him to the top of the order. It just doesn't. It, I mean, yes, he's had some big moments. Yes, he's come up with some clutch hits. He's very fun to watch. He does a lot of things really well. 
but let's not pretend he's lighting the world on fire. Yeah. So I think there's this disconnect between the idea of, well, we really need a guy to jumpstart our offense and that guy being Tommy Edmond. <laughs> it just doesn't really follow. Right. It's also the danger when you develop a lot of one and a half to two and a half win players, yeah. um, a, a bulk of them. And then all of a sudden they're all there and you're like, I don't know what to, you know, there's no obvious person you have to play. I mean, uh, to me, Ozuna is a pretty, you know, when we're talking about that last yeah. spot. We're not really talking about Ozuna and Fowler. Right. And not that Fowler has to play every day because he doesn't, but he's going to play a lot. But yeah, when you keep developing all these outfielders who are not necessarily the same guy, but who no one really stands out in terms of, oh, this is going to be, uh, I guess O'Neill, you know, people have been talking about O'Neill's ceiling for years. Um, and he, he did certainly look better in this last stretch when he got to play a lot more. Uh, but yeah, when you keep having all these guys who are just going to come up and, and be productive uh, to a point where it's hard to not play them, but not to the point where they obviously have to play. <laughs> I, if, you know <laughs> what I mean? I guess that's sort of been the Cardinals problem now for the last couple of seasons of just a lot of decent players, but not a lot of great players. Yeah. And then, you know, next season you throw Dylan Carlson into that mix. And I guess what frustrates me is this bizarre obsession with that kind of player and this resistance to flipping any of that for pitching because Yes, I know the Cardinals offense is a problem, but having nine guys who could play in the outfield and who can also hit a little bit isn't going to rescue the offense because you can only play three of them at a time. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that math works in the minds of, of some of the front office, I guess, but I mean, they're going to need to eat up innings somehow. We don't really have time to dive into that tonight. We've talked a lot about the pitching as it is, but you know, you sort of uncomplicate the outfield mess by flipping some of those outfielders and turning them into pitchers, um, which the Cardinals don't seem super excited to do. But I am excited to see Randy Rosarena play, to see how Mike Schilt mixes. I don't know if I'm quite as excited to see how Mike Schilt mixes those guys into the lineup as we go along before we see Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader, Jose Martinez return to the big league roster, but uh, it's definitely something that's going to be intriguing to watch. I'm not sure always in a positive direction, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see what Mike Schilt decides to do with it. Sounds good. All right. That is that the Cardinals hanging on to the two nothing lead for the moment, Andrew Miller into pitch. So who knows what's going to happen there? It could be great. It could be complete disaster. So while we wait to find out, Alex, yeah, what is your chirp of the week? Yeah, this this lead still does feel a little suspicious, doesn't it? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so sure does. <laughs> if you recall, at the beginning of the season, uh, probably about a month in, I decided I was going to get into the NL batting race because Paul uh, DeYoung at the time was knocking on the door uh, near the top. He was like, you know, wasn't he, he had like around, around like a 340 batting average, at least yeah. for the first couple of weeks, you know, the season mm-hmm. we were like, haha, Cubs, we have the best shortstop in the NL Central. Remember when we were being obnoxious about that? It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, no. He still had a very good season, uh, but he is no longer in the thick of the batting race. In fact, he's batting 249. And perhaps even more interesting, if this season were to end a day, let's say this was 1994, because this is about when the strike uh, happened in 1994, and the season ended today, 
do you know who would be leading the Cardinals in hitting? And I guess when I asked you that, pretend I didn't already mention this to you earlier. But uh, No, Alex, who would be okay. leading the team in hitting? Uh, Colton Wong would be leading <laughs> the Cardinals. Of course he would. In, would be leading the Cardinals in hitting, at least for qualified hitters, with a 267 batting average, uh, which is pretty low. Uh, I'd say it's actually very low. Uh, so I, I wanted to see, uh, oh, all right, turn two here, turn two, and yes, okay, sorry. Cardinals just turned a crucial double play. All right, so I wanted to see when the last time the Cardinals finished a season in which qualified hitters, the leader, had a batting average uh, 267 or worse. Uh, I had to go back very, very far to go to oh find someone. But yeah, very far to find someone below 300. Uh, you had to go back to 2015 when Jason Hayward led the team in hitting with a 293 batting average. Even in 1968, uh, both, uh, you know, we think in 1968, Bob Gibson year, the year, you know, they had to lower the mound because no one was hitting. Well, Kurt Flood hit over 300 that year, and Lou Brock had a pretty good batting average as well. Uh, and speaking of Lou Brock, this is the 40th anniversary of his uh, 3,000s hit uh, against the Cubs, so, that, so that's fun. Um, but no, so backing up 50 years wasn't enough. Uh, backing up 100 years uh, isn't even enough. You have to go all the way back to 1907 oh, when boy. a gent by the name of Red Murray, a uh, real name John, John uh, Red Murray hit 262 for the 1907 Cardinals, and that led the team. That led a not very good team. The Cardinals went 52-101 and 101, um, in 1907, uh, which uh, was pretty much last in the national league. Uh, I was reading a little about, uh, excuse me. I was reading a little bit about red Murray. I was reading his saber bio and it said that he, uh, was the son of a coal miner, uh, which I feel like all players back then were sons of, uh, coal miners. Probably um, true. But yeah, but he spent a bulk of his career, uh, with the New York giants. Um, he died of leukemia in December 4th, 1958 and his obituary. This is for red Murray ranked him with Mel Ott as one of the two greatest right fielders in New York Giant history. Uh, well, that's funny because uh, Red Murray was worth about 14 wins above replacement for his career, and Mel Ott was worth about 115 <laughs> wins above replacement for his career. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I don't know, exa- you know, w- were they exaggerating a little bit there, perhaps? Um, or maybe he, uh, you know, after Mel Ott, he was the greatest right fielder in New York Giant history. I don't know. But, you know, I feel like on your obituary, if you want to, uh, you know, perhaps um, enhance some of your feats a little bit, you should be allowed to do that. Because, that seems fair. Yeah, it's your obituary. Uh, but, yeah, let's keep an eye on Colton Wong um, or th- just the Cardinals in general to see if we can get a batting average um, a little bit higher. Or who knows, if it uh, drops below Red Murray's 262 in 1907, then um, we could be looking at the worst batting average ever for um, the Cardinal who led the team in hitting. And that is your trip of the week. That is not to, of course, demean uh, Colton Wong um, or any of the other players. Uh, obviously not Colton Wong since he is still leading the team and he's had a very good season and has turned it on as of late. And I know you've enjoyed watching him play. I've enjoyed watching him play. I very much enjoy watching him play. I will be curious. The The timing is uh, impeccable as usual because we also found out today that assistant hitting coach Mark Badaska has been 
air quotes, relieved of his duties, which is always a funny way to say he was fired because of a, you know, philosophy discrepancy between him and Jeff Albert, as far as we can tell, based on the reports that have come out of Kansas City today, there were uh, more than a few things that the two of them did not see eye to eye on. And it was creating an environment that was not particularly helpful for the hitters, which is not all that surprising considering what you just told us about the lack of productive hitting up and down the lineup. We've seen it from guys who have incredible career numbers to guys who have been less effective over the course of shorter careers. So it'll be interesting to see what happens now with Jimenez, who will step in from Memphis and be the assistant hitting coach the rest of the season. I don't know that we'll see any immediate results from that, but who knows? Perhaps the Jeff Albert curriculum that is evidently quite complex will uh, start to be simplified in a much more productive way as we go through the remainder of August. So, Colton Wong, your batting average leader at the moment. Hopefully, even I can say we see that change as the likes of Paul Goldschmidt and uh, Marcelo Zuna, perhaps, and others get uh, get things going down the stretch. We've seen better from Paul Goldschmidt um, in the second half, but still a long way to go for him to really impress as he skies one to uh, center field but not even the warning track. So maybe his power will come back with, uh, yeah. with the addition of if, a new assistant hitting coach. If his WRC plus doesn't um, like stays at like 110 throughout his Carl's career, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I also don't see eye to eye with Jeff Albert or. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see who it was. That was the real problem at this point. Maybe I don't know. We'll, how we'll see this era of, uh, of, of Jeff Albert in St. Louis, but this episode of the show we will wrap up make sure that as i mentioned you let us know what you think about all of these things as we go throughout the week on twitter we love hearing from you and continuing the conversation as always i'm on twitter at tara wellman he's at alexcard79 you can follow birds on the black on twitter and at birdsontheblack.com always fun stuff going on there thank you as always for listening and we'll talk to you next time